Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you for tonight, this opportunity to open your word together, to be confronted by the truth, to know the truth. And so we would ask that you would help us to embrace the truth. <clears throat> we thank you for your spirit, how he intercedes on our behalf and attends to us and illuminates our mind and our understanding. And so we pray to you tonight that that would, in fact, take place so that we might live for you in all areas of our life, just like your son did. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, take your Bibles tonight and open them with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, as we once again focus our attention on the trial of Jesus Christ. I want to focus our attention on verses 12 through 16 tonight, and so I'll ask you to follow along as I read these verses for us. Apostle John says, as a result of this, that is, as a result of what was just said by Jesus in verse 11, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Galbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they therefore cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so then he delivered him to them to be crucified. These are sobering words as we begin our time tonight. Jesus has just been tried in a Jewish kangaroo court, if you will, a system of law that was to fight for the innocence of the accused. And yet, as we saw, it worked to place guilt upon the only human who could ever honestly and rightly claim innocence in every area of life. Jesus has been tried a second time in the Roman court. In a Roman court under the rule of a weak and spineless ruler who is even about to go against his own conscience as he is going to condemn Jesus. All of this lies on the backdrop of the fact that Jesus has been tried and convicted already. He has been tried and convicted in the court of human opinion as to who he is, as to what he is doing in the world. Those who were there that day and every rejecting person that has ever lived since then would rather live with a truly guilty reality on their hearts and rather choose, like the Jews did, the guilty to go free rather than to have their collective hearts exposed of the hypocrisy of their so-called love for God. 
We've even looked at this passage from the perspective of being a jury. A few weeks ago, we looked at it as being those who would, in fact, render a verdict upon Christ. And we found out that in that reality, the decision we would make concerning Him would have far greater impact on us as a jury than it would have on Him as the one in the trial. Because if we chose to reject Jesus Christ, the reality is an eternal damnation. And yet if you choose to say that Christ was guilty, Christ was going to die, and if you believe upon Him, you would have life in His name. Last time we were here, we thought through the implications of authority. Authority and the responsibility of all of us who live amongst it. Those who not only have authority, but those of us who live under that authority, that we must live in light of the one who grants authority. We learn that we have a greater consequence, a greater sin for those of us who know better. Those of us have a greater sin than those who are purely pagan and yet have a ruling position like Pilate had. We saw in verse 10 that Pilate thought his rule was an autonomous rule when he said, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Pilate thought he ruled in an ultimatum, in a dictum over all of those who were under his rule. And yet he heard from Jesus Christ who has all authority over all the world, that he would have no rule unless it had been given to him from above. That all rule, that all authority comes not from mankind, it comes from God himself. Even Pilate himself, who was the ruler, had a responsibility to execute his rule under the reality that he was going to answer for how he ruled to the living and true God. But the religious leaders had greater sin. The religious leaders had greater sin. Because they knew better. They knew who Jesus Christ was. They claimed to have a relationship with God himself. And yet they were killing and rejecting the very son of God. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, we we have to take that to heart. Because at the very least... It shows us that we as Christians have a greater responsibility before God to live under the knowledge of His rule. No matter what kind of governing authority we are under. We have a greater responsibility to live under the rule of God no matter what kind of rule God has placed us under. And so when you read this passage and when you think through this passage, the real issue is an issue of authority. In fact, everything that we encounter in this life is an issue of authority. Who will rule? It's a matter of who will rule and who is ruling. It doesn't matter if you're saved or if you're unsaved. It doesn't matter really who you are. But more so, who is ruling over us in our own lives and our own hearts? That's the issue. Who is ruling? 
Every person has to deal with the implication of that, both saved and unsaved alike. And, and we get a glimpse of this tonight in our passage in the actions of Pilate. Both the saved and the unsaved alike must deal with that reality and work through the implications of what they are living under, who is ruling in them. And Pilate gives us an example of this as the unsaved. Pilate wanted to free Jesus. He had already pronounced him innocent several times as we have even looked at it through the end of chapter 28 or 19, I mean chapter 18 and verse 28 and following all the way down to where we are to now. Pilate has tried and made attempts to free Jesus several times. He sent him to Herod, not here in this uh, gospel, but in the other gospels that give this account. He sent him to Herod hoping that he would somehow relieve Pilate of the conclusive verdict that needed to be rendered concerning Jesus. And then, of course, he had Jesus beaten, beaten to the point of an inch of his life in hopes of garnering some sense of sympathy from the crowd who had already given their collective verdict on Jesus. And all of this, even after Jesus informed Pilate where his authority to rule actually came from, even then, after that, Pilate attempts to free Jesus. You notice in verse 12, as a result of this, as a result of Jesus informing Pilate where his authority really came from, whether he believed that or not isn't said here in the text, but at least as a result of that, Pilate makes efforts to release him. Pilate wants nothing to do with the guilt of Jesus Christ. And it seems rather perplexing, doesn't it? That after all of these attempts to free Jesus, to clearly declare his innocence, it's perplexing that Pilate would eventually acquiesce and turn Jesus over for crucifixion. And the question we have in our minds is why? Why would Pilate do this? Well, Verse 12 actually gives us the answer to that question. Notice what it says. Pilate makes every effort to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. There are implications in those words, and the implication of those words is that Pilate didn't, if he didn't condemn Jesus, then the crowd who already had condemned Jesus by their public opinion would bring Pilate before his own boss, Caesar. And that's where the truth really comes out. It's here, in those words, that we see what really rules Pilate who the authority is in the life of Pilate. Pilate feared man more than he feared anything else. Pilate is between what I like to say a rock and a sovereign place. Pilate doesn't know God. Pilate doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ by any stretch of the imagination. He isn't saved at all. And yet here he is as an unbeliever between a rock and a sovereign place. He was the governor. He was put in that place by Caesar. He was the one who spoke on behalf of Caesar. 
He had Roman soldiers at his command and at his bidding. He could do what he needed to do in order to take care of whatever situation faced him. And yet, here he is, riddled with fear. Riddled with fear. What, what, what was Pilate specifically afraid of? What was he specifically afraid of? Well, actually, there are several things that he was afraid of. For one, as we've seen in our study already, he was actually afraid of Jesus. Remember back in verse 8? When therefore Pilate heard the statement, he was even the more afraid, it says. What statement? That Jesus had made himself out to be the Son of God? He was even more afraid when he said that. It wasn't reverent fear. It wasn't an awe of God itself, a, a, a reverent fear of the true and living God, even though Jesus, it's ironic that Pilate says to him back in verse 38 of the previous chapter, what is truth when Pilate has truth standing right in front of him? So he didn't have a, a reverent fear for Jesus Christ, but he was fearful that maybe Jesus was in fact the manifestation of one of the many gods of his nation's superstition. And so if that was true, he was afraid that maybe he was going against some kind of god. So Pilate, Pilate feared Jesus. That's the first thing that we know. But secondly, Pilate was certainly afraid of the people. He was afraid of the crowd. History tells us he didn't like the Jews very much. In fact, if you look into history at all about Pilate, he had a whole host of run-ins with the Jews. And he knew, though, however, that by mass they had persuasive power. And he knew that if that power had been exercised by them, it could only bring trouble to him politically. And so Pilate feared the crowd he feared Jesus, he feared the crowd, but thirdly, and I think probably most importantly, he feared his boss. He feared Caesar. From a human perspective, it was right to fear Caesar. Tiberius Caesar was the ruler of the day. He was a ruthless ruler. In fact, history tells us that he was suspicious of everyone. If there was any even a hint of suspicion that came to his ears that you may not be on his side, that you might not be supportive of him as to his rulership, then he would have had you brutally put to death for treason. Well, Pilate had already had his problems. He had already had difficulty with the Jews. His name wasn't exactly the best name in the ears of Caesar. And so some of the political gaffes that he had brought some attention to him from Caesar himself. And so what if the people went, sent word to Caesar that he had let a prisoner go who in fact was claiming to be a king? What would happen then? That would have received no joy from Caesar and Pilate would have been held accountable. And so... Who was the greater authority in the life of Pilate? It was a fear of man. A fear of man. He feared man and thereby went even against his own conscience and sentenced the only innocent one, Jesus, to death. 
And I think there's a lesson in all of that for us. Because the one here truly in the authoritative position is God. When you back up and you look at the whole thing and you think about what is taking place, the one who is truly in the authoritative position is God. He is the one orchestrating all the details. He is the one who has brought it about. He is the one who is placed in the position of authority, both Caesar and Pilate. He is the one who is orchestrating all of this. And therefore, we must understand and we must live under not the fear of man, but the fear of God. So how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we live under the understanding and fear of God in all things? Well, first we have to understand that God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and that includes sovereign over the human affairs of man. I don't know if you read this text prior to our time together each and every week, but the more time I spend in this text, the more that truth floods my mind. God is sovereign. Think about it. Here is Jesus. Here is Jesus. Here is the creator of all things. Right? Colossians tells us that in him all things were made, and apart from him nothing was made that was made. So right here, standing before Pilate, is the creator of all things. John tells us that in him was life. He sustains all things by the word of his power. That, beloved, is sovereignty. And it is that truth that runs throughout this entire text. From all the way back, the first words that were uttered by Judas in betrayal of Jesus Christ to the final words of Pilate here to the people, all the way to the final words of Jesus Christ himself hanging on the cross. He is the authority over it all. He, the creator of the universe, is the one subjecting himself to the very righteous judgment that he has demanded upon the sin of us. Let me say that again. The sovereign God, the one who has authority over it all, the one who has created it all, is the very one who is subjecting himself to the very righteous judgment that he has demanded upon the sin of you and I. The only way that any of us will ever be able to stand up and live contrary to human authority when it is God's honor to do so, when, it, when we are honoring God in doing that, is when we understand the sovereign authority of Christ that rules in our hearts as the supreme authority. You will never ever stand up against human authority when it honors God to do that, and it does not honor God all the time to do that, by the way. But in those moments when it honors God to do that, the only way you will be able to do that and stand up against human authority and stand in that place is when you understand that Christ is the sovereign authority over it all. 
The only thing that held the reformers to the stakes on which they were tied and on top of the, lo- the pile of sticks that were about to be lit on fire was that reality. That Jesus Christ was the sovereign ruler of it all. We think of the Old Testament. We think of Daniel. Daniel went to the lion's den. Why? Because God's authority over him was supreme. His cohorts that were there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, went into the fiery furnace. Why? Because God's authority ruled over them. Not man's. Why did the sovereignty of God rule in them? Because they knew what the word of God said. And they believed it. Because they were saturated with the truth of God. And they believed it. In fact, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Listen, you can throw us in the fiery furnace and our God will rescue us. But even if He doesn't rescue us, we will not bow to you. The only way that you can say that in the midst of the authority over you in a human kind of way where you stand against human authority is when the sovereign authority of God rules in your hearts. In a word, they lived by faith. They lived by faith. It wasn't that they simply wanted to do the right thing. And therefore, out of the mustering of their own self and a mustering of their own energy and a mustering of their own will and a mustering of, I'm going to do this, that they stood strong. No, they had to know what the right thing was at the moment and trust it. The place that could be found was only in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, without the Scriptures, we have no answers for anything. Without the Scriptures, we have no answers at all. The reason Pilate is making the decision he is making is because Pilate has no answers. He has no answers in himself. He has no answers even in his own authority. Without the Scriptures, we are like people trying to tell time in the dark with a flashlight and a sundial. You ever try to do that? Go into your closet with a sundial and a flashlight and tell me what time it is. Certainly you can turn on the flashlight and you can get a shadow on the sundial, but you have no idea whether that time that you're shining is right. It's the same way with us. Our conscience must be informed by what is true from the Word of God. Then we know what's truly right. And then we must surrender to it. And this was Pilate's trouble. Now someone's going to say, surely, well, Pilate didn't know the true and living God. True. True. He didn't. He didn't even follow the so-called sovereignty of the gods of his own making. Even the gods of the Roman world, the multiplicity of gods that they superstitiously followed, had some sense of sovereignty over their lives. They did what they did in order to try to appease the authority of the gods. But even Pilate didn't follow that. 
If he really was afraid of Jesus and was afraid of him by saying that he was a God, if that philosophy ruled in his life, then he would have immediately set Jesus free when Jesus, when he found out that Jesus had claimed that. All we're told is what he was more afraid after he heard that. Even though Pilate probably never read any of the Jewish scriptures, he still had an innate moral compass because God has put that in our hearts, Romans 1 says. We all know that God is there. We suppress that truth in unrighteousness. He had an innate, given to him by God, moral compass that could tell right from wrong, and yet he goes against even it. No, what ruled Pilate's life was what Pilate valued the most. Himself. Himself. He had to choose between what was right and what the world wanted around him, and he didn't hesitate to choose the world and the rewards of it for himself. So what ruled Pilate was not sovereign authority. What ruled Pilate was his own authority. And I guess, I guess with that, there's an irony. There's an irony here. <clears throat> because as I said before, the more I read this text, the more I see the sovereign hand of God ruling all things. And yet there's an irony here. Because Pilate is convinced that Jesus is innocent. We've seen that. He said it more than three times. Pilate is convinced of the innocent of Jesus, that there is no guilt in this man. As he says, he wants to release him. And yet, against even his own conscience, Jesus is condemned and crucified. Why? Why? There's really a simple answer. And the simple answer is that God had decreed this to happen from eternity past. The simple answer is that God is in authority over all of this. That doesn't mean that Pilate's not guilty of his sin in this matter, but it does confirm to us just what the Old Testament scriptures declare in Isaiah 53, that it pleased the Father to crush him. It pleased the Father to crush him. That's all happening by the sovereign orchestration of the divine plan and purpose of God. And so when you read the next verses, we have to keep that in our mind. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out. And he sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement but in Hebrew, Galbatha. And it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to them, Behold your king. Pilate comes out to the people again. He sits down on the judgment seat. The judgment seat is the bema. That's, that's, that's the word here. It's the bema seat. We may, we've heard that word before in our reading of the scriptures, especially when we looked at 1 Corinthians, the place where verdicts were publicly rendered. That's the, that's the seed. It's the place where uh, judgments were made. 
And so we have an understanding of the Bema. The Apostle Paul uses it. He uses it in language to describe the day when we as Christians, we as the people of God, will one day stand before Christ who is on the Bema seat. This isn't the great white throne judgment. Our sin has been paid for. Our judgment on sin has, has been taken place at the cross. But we will stand before Christ as He is on the Bema seat and He will render judgment of our lives as Christians in order to give rewards to us for what we have done here. Of course, those... Rewards that we get will, in turn, we will give them back to Christ as a thanksgiving and praise to Him. And so Paul, or so the John says here that Pilate takes his seat there at the judgment seat, called the place, the pavement, a large area, a large area near where Pilate lived, raised up above the normal ground, typically, so that all could see and all could hear what was being done, all could see the judgment that was taking place. And Jesus is brought out, brought out before the Jews. And you notice John is very specific as to the time that this took place. Notice what he says, verse 14, that was the day of preparation for the Passover, It was about the sixth hour. It's preparation day. By that, he means the period of time when all the leaven was to be removed from the home. That was what took place during preparation for the Passover. It symbolized what God had done with with the Jews as he brought them from Egypt. And he commanded the Israelites to do uh, on the evening before they were They were going to be rescued by God out of the hands of the Egyptians to remove all the leaven so that they could move in haste. Remember, to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that when the angel of death came by, he would pass them by. Remove the leaven, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 15. It was a ritual. It was a ritual, but as it went on over the years, it had moral implications to it. Removing the leaven was to symbolize the purging out of the old, the removal of the old and the bringing in of the new. The leaven was the wickedness. The leaven was the malice. The leaven was all the sin that was to be purged out. The removal of everything that was old. There too is an irony. An irony in what John wrote here, because it's obvious from what we see in this passage, particularly in the following verse, that the Jewish leadership who was there at the time thought nothing of the authority of God in giving them the command of the preparation day. They thought nothing of the authority of God when they said that. Nothing of the ritual. Why? Because even in the hour of preparation, here it is, the day of preparation, they are engaged in the most wicked act in all of history. Preparation day was symbolic of removing wickedness, and here they are bringing that in. Notice also, John says it was about the sixth hour. Now, some of you who are astute Bible students will say, doesn't that contradict what Mark's gospel says? Because Mark's gospel says that Jesus' condemnation and subsequent and immediate, if you will, crucifixion was at about the third hour. Here John says it was the sixth hour. What in the world 
is going on. You can read all kinds of things that go on in commentaries about this little detail. But we have to remember that the Jewish day was calculated from sunrise to sunset. That was the Jewish day. It was basically a 12-hour period of time. And those times were grouped into three-hour periods. Usually, they were referred to by the last hour of that period, excluding the fourth period, because the fourth period was the, basically the starting of sunrise, so you, or the starting of the night until it went all the way to the sunrise. So they normally never referred to that. At least we don't find any reference to that here in Scripture. So each of those periods, at least the first three, were referred to by the third hour of that time. So from the time of sunrise, which was around 6 a.m. usually, that went to 9 a.m. That would be the first hour. The third hour, the second group, or, or that would be the third hour, and that first one from the first hour to the third hour referred to as the third hour, which would be close to 9 a.m. The second group was known as the sixth hour. The sixth hour went from the time of 9 a.m. to noon. And then, of course, you had the ninth hour from which around noon to 3 So when referring to the time of day, only the third, sixth, and ninth hours were usually referred to in any kind of way. And so depending on your perspective, depending on how you looked at it, it could be 9 a.m. And you could refer to it as about the third hour. Or it could be referred to as about the sixth hour. I think that's all you're seeing here. You're seeing two different perspectives. Of course, in Jewish days, all times were approximate. They didn't have wristwatch. They didn't have nice Apple watches and whatever else we carry around to tell us the time that's based off off a satellite, which running in perfect time. No one had a watch like that. There was no exactness. And in fact, we even do this today, even though we have watches. We say it's 1145. 1145, at least from that perspective, indicates that it's semi-morning time. It's just before what might be afternoon. And yet we can refer to that same time as quarter to twelve. And quarter to twelve looks at it from the perspective of the other side. And so it's more closer to noon than it is to 1140. And so we do the same thing. Same time, different vantage points. And so when John here is referring to is it being about the sixth hour, and Mark says that it's about the third hour, we have to remember that these are simply just reference points, reference points of the same approximate time and not contradictory at all. In fact, it's interesting in the original language, even that term about is 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 in the wording. It, it, it's in the phraseology. It's it's assumed in that phraseology so that we wouldn't be confused. And the Holy Spirit isn't... We, we know when the Scriptures were being written that the Scriptural writers were being used by God in all their ways and all their talents and all their viewpoints and all that, and the Spirit was carrying them along so that when Mark wrote and when John writes, even though they're looking at the same time from a different perspective, the Holy Spirit and His graciousness condescending to us gives us that word, and it says it was about the sixth hour. No confusion for us at all. Now Pilate says, Behold your king. 
He's no longer identified as the man, as he said before in verse 5, behold the man, now it's behold your king. Now he's the king, not because Pilate believed it. Surely he's saying it as a sarcastic poke in the eye of the Jew. He certainly feels trapped by their insistence for a crucifixion. But nonetheless, in irony, and once again, a testimony to the Holy Spirit, the title is actually true. This is the king. Here is the only true king. Here is the creator king humiliating himself in order that you and I who might believe upon him would be saved for and through his glory. So the Jews speak. Verse 15. Therefore, Therefore cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate says to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Rather shocking, isn't it? Here is the public and overt rejection of the true king. No longer disguised, no longer hidden behind a cloud and a shroud of knowing God at all. Here is the, the actual rejection of the true king. Sounds very similar to the words of Jesus in the parable of the vineyard owner who had sent his, his servants to go and see how his vineyard was doing and those who were in the vineyard who were, who were using the vineyard at the time took those servants and beat them and sent them away symbolizing that the prophets that God had sent to the people that they just took and beat and killed the prophets and so he says well certainly they'll do better to my son I'll send my son to the vineyard certainly they will treat my son with care and they see his son far off and they say this is the heir let us take and kill him this was the very same people So Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? Once again, an attempt to poke the Jews in the eye of their guilt-ridden heart concerning the false accusations about Jesus Christ. And the people give their answer. We have no king but Caesar. If there ever was a statement of the human heart that seals the fate of the human heart, that's it. I will have no king over me. They have not simply just rejected a man. They have not rejected, as Pilate said, the man who is Jesus Christ. They have rejected God. This is not just simply people who have said we don't want this man they have said we do not want God they are denying all divine moral and doctrinal authority over them so what happens 
Pilate hands Jesus over to their rejection. He delivers him to them to be crucified. That doesn't imply that they took Jesus, the Jews themselves, and crucified him themselves, but at the hands of the Romans. He no longer interceded. I was reading this week, I, 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 I came across this, this quote again. It was something I've read in the past that said this, quote, Human beings never learn anything from history except that they never learn anything from history, unquote. I thought, what a great statement. It certainly seems to be true of Israel's history. They had previously rejected God as their king, Right? They had said under the care of Solomon or under the care of Samuel, we'll have no king. We want a king over us, but not that one. And God said to him, look, let them choose their king. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. It's the same thing we see here. For they had previously rejected God. And now here they are rejecting God again. But it's not just true of the Israel. It's true of the Gentile nations. Because we haven't learned from their history either. You say, why do you say that? Because all men have rejected the authority and rule of the rightful king. We've all rejected the authority of God. God is always in the authoritative position. And we are commanded to bow to him. Ephesians 2 says that one day all... People will bow, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is in the authoritative position, and one day it will be in fact demanded, and everyone will show it. The only way that we will bow to Him now is when He opens our eyes to believe in his righteous king, who is his son, Jesus Christ. The one who is crucified for sin, the sin of all who would ever believe. We can thank God tonight that verse 17 says what it says. They took Jesus therefore and he went out. Bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And there they crucified him. Our sovereign God ruling over it all so that we who have rejected could be redeemed. Amazing, isn't it? Who is the authority in your life? Is it you? Or is it God? Jesus, remember remember what John said? Why is this here? Why did John write this? Why do we have, by the carrying of the Holy Spirit in the heart and mind of John to pen these very words. Why is it here? John has told us. I wrote this so that you might believe 
that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. Don't reject. Don't rule your own life. God is the sovereign authority. Believe and follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, tonight we thank you again for the example that you have shown us of your sovereign care of all details. The amazing reality that you, the sovereign God, would stand on trial before the very creation that you created so that the very creation who had rejected you might be saved. Lord, there is no authority over us except you. The authority that you have raised up to rule men is all at your hand. And therefore we must realize that we are under your authority. Help us live according to that in all things. Help us surrender our lives to you because we know that you are the one who must be acknowledged. We must reverence you. Better to do it now when there is the age of mercy and grace than to be forced to do it later where there is no grace and only judgment. Lord, thank you for these things. Impress them upon our hearts and our minds this week that you might be honored and glorified in us. Help us to adorn the gospel for Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen.